Welcome back to Nota Bene. Here we, Here we are, are again. What's going on, Nate Freeman? You're not driving a car today. It looks like you're in uh, some sort of motel hotel situation based upon the art behind you. Yeah, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, if you, if you have to know. It's a beautiful town. There, great golf uh, city. Some great golf city, not golfing, but uh, it's got excellent golf vibes. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like yeah, the Hamptons, but but sunny and warm. Yeah, if you didn't quite hit it big enough to make the move to Palm Beach, then, you know, certainly Scottsdale is a Mm -hmm. a snowboard's paradise. Yep, yep, it certainly is. Lovely, lovely town. That's McCain country right there. Big time, yeah. This is is a a stronghold of the, the, the very, very shrinking number of McCain Republicans. So since we've last spoken, you've moved from kind of uh, the, the, the deep South Louisiana type area and Texas where you were hitting up the barbecue on your way to Austin. Um, and then what did you go through like New Mexico? Oh, first, did you go to Marfa? Yeah, went to Marfa. Spectacular as always. Uh, I mean, it, it, if you haven't been to Marfa, you, I mean, it's I have never been to Marfa. Isn't that a crime? Then- it, it, it is. I mean, for all the shit that it gets for being, you know, like Instagrammy and foodie and like, you know, the place where you have to go to take your picture in front of the, the, the Prada store or whatever, you know, it truly ho- it has one of the greatest museums on planet Earth, which is the Chinati Foundation. Well, and listen, I mean, Instagram and food, those are things I believe in and great That's art. True. So I, I it, it is only for practical reasons that I've never been. I'm waiting until someone invites me to fly me direct, because otherwise, from what I understand, it's a fairly long drive from the commercially accessible airport. Well, one, it's not. It's three hours from El Paso. So I think you can you can stomach that. But two, that's part of the the fun, you know. Plus, like when Chris Wool and Charlene von Heil, uh, like came in on their private jet, like you know during the peak COVID, people were not too pleased. So maybe you should just just hang out with the white boy for a minute here and just drive into Marfa. Listen, t- t- from each according to their abilities, I get you for the hoi polloi, and uh, I'll try and find a more efficient <laughs> mode of transport. Um, did you yourself. did you Lincoln build with? The, uh, there's tons of friends of the pod down there in Marfa, uh, basically full time. You Lincoln build with anyone? You see any of the folks from the Marfa Art Fair? Uh, you know, I, I wanted to, we were there for just, you know, such a short amount of time. We had so much to do. I didn't get a chance to see some good friends in Marfa, uh, you know, but, you know, we did, you know, get to see it. We went to the block, which was Don Judd's house and went to all of his studios. And of course, when Chinati did run into a friend of the pod, a fashion designer and all around great guy, Tremaine Emery, randomly ran into him at Chinati, ended up going to dinner that night and then ended up at one of the great dive bars in Texas, the lost horse saloon. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. And then, uh, so you had a little bit of Marfa town on your little honeymoon and then you drove what, like through New Mexico, one of the most Mm -hmm. beautiful States with, I mean, they used to be contemporary art there in Santa Fe site. Santa Fe used to be an important kind of biennial or so contemporary art location. No longer, unfortunately. Right. I mean, there wasn't much art for us to see in New Mexico. We were just in uh, a small town called Las Cruces, uh, near uh, the chili capital of the world, Hatch, New Mexico. So I ate a lot of green chilies. That that's an art form in and of itself, though. You know, I mean, like you go to Champagne for the Champagne, you go to to New Mexico for the chilies. You know, and so that 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 was you know enough art for me. It was just eating a lot of spicy ass fucking Mexican food. If they're not from New Mexico, they're just uh, sparkling chilies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. And now you're in Arizona. Uh, Arizona, in my opinion, is kind of a garbage pit. But, you know, hey, <laughs> it's on the way to California. So you got to go through it. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> you know, strip malls and Republicans. Um, you know, God bless. Um, don't come at me, all of our Arizona listeners. Um, I do want to hit Can we some have Arizona listeners. All right, never mind. We'll, we'll talk to the advertisers about that. Um, and uh, and um, I do want to touch. I was just cruising through the news as I want to do, and actually got What's a newsletter. New, well, just uh, I got a newsletter from one of my favorite uh, restaurants uh, in mm-hmm. London. Kind of what I treat. I'm not officially a member of Covadis, but they kind of treat me like a member. I can always sure, get a table sure. there. Uh, mm-hmm. There in the heart of Soho, uh, wonderful Covadis, uh, uh, helmed by the brilliant chef Jeremy Lee, and super mm-hmm. fun place to eat i've had lunches and dinners with many a friend of the pod there when in london town and uh evidently uh the woman liz truss the tory leader who is many think will will come after boris johnson to lead the tories um Mm -hmm. she was she was hosting our american trade representative she's somehow like in charge of trade and um ended up spending quite a bit of money not there she she insisted on going to five hertford street another great restaurant i will admit but uh owned by a big tory supporter it goes down uh and ended up and and they didn't want her to go there and, and they tried to get her to go to Covadis just because they thought it was a public perception thing. And she considered it uh, not appropriate. And uh, uh, I wow. think, well, you know, I think inappropriateness is something to recommend a restaurant often, <laughs> often, often. But I, in, in going down this Robert rabbit hole, uh, I went through and saw some of their drinks order for this dinner. And I was like, oh, oh wow. yeah, we're talking three bottles of dry gin, uh, a couple <laughs> bottles of Albarino uh, at one. 153 pounds per bottle. I'm not sure what kind of Spanish wine is costing that, but God bless. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also stuff, their, their barbell alone was something like 1,200 pounds. And I was thinking, oh, these are, these are our people. They should have gone to Covadis, though. Their buck would have gone, gone a lot further. And I look forward to getting back uh, go back to mm. London sooner rather than later. Me so too. That- I think, I think there, there's some linking and building that, that we can do for the pod. We should start moving the pod into to, you know English politics more. I, I think that, that you know, I can I can hang with them at the bar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, their their politics is somehow more amusing, maybe because we're not attached to it, so it isn't quite as depressing. Um, mm-hmm. Although I think if you live there, maybe it's equally, if not more, more depressing. In other uh, tangential to the art world news, but I think really important cultural news, blowing up. Uh, I guess this was I don't know. Was this Thursday night, Friday morning? Blowing up Instagram and Twitter. Uh, uh, Interview magazine published an incredible <laughs> uh, essay slash diary and and video. Uh, excuse me, photo essay. Uh, from Julia Fox, uh, Diane of downtown mm-hmm. herself, uh, a real scene maker of her budding romance with uh, with the the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Mm, Did you see incredible. this? Is absolutely I, I, incredible, incredible piece of cultural ephemera, just I just know. burbling forth live. Just just a big big model to everyone involved there. The whole interview team for landing what is the the first great piece of journalism of 2022. Yeah, I mean, Truly, this, this, this is what the Pulitzers were made for. I, I, you, I mean, I think it actually was kind of brilliant. This woman. No, no, it was. I mean, yeah, yeah. totally sincerely. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, like, I mean, like, fuck the, you know, like the, the paps, you know, it's just like, yay. And Julia just like went straight to Mel Ottenberg interview. It was like, you know what? Let's just, just own the narrative here. Like your, your photographers can be just taking all these pictures. We're going to write, write something and, and it'll go viral. And it did. Yes, you have this great video essay of, I guess, Yee bought her all these clothes. She's trying them on. They're having romantic moments and kisses. Then they go to dinner at Carbone, which is like set decorated just Mm -hmm. for this photo shoot. They they did the thing that I've done before, which is a few days after you go to Carbone in Miami Beach, you go to Carbone in in New York. Yeah, that's I highly recommend it. I highly recommend (laughs) that. 
There are other restaurants out there, uh, yeah. celebrities, um, but super special. I love this Essa Bayer. I mean, she's just for me has been a fascinating character, kind of even before she was in uh, Uncut Gems, starring starring across from Adam Sandler. I mean, she was always downtown, like a big Lucy and regular, as I mm-hmm. recall. Um, totally, and uh, and just really taking like kind of the downtown art adjacent scene into the like real pop cultural, uh, you know, kind of like. A-list sphere with Yeezy. I just find it fascinating. But what Mel is doing at Interview more broadly, and this is what made me really latch on to this, like that in, that magazine's going from, it felt highly irrelevant to me to like yeah. super, super relevant almost overnight over the past, I don't know, four or five issues that he's been uh, EIC of. The guy's a genius. There's no doubt about it. Like it's so hard to make a print magazine like feel like part of the cultural conversation right now. I mean, I work for a magazine that's always part of the cultural conversation because it's Vanity Fair. But like when you're talking about like downtown publications, like they just don't really exist. That's why the Drunken Canal like was able to get such a foothold so quickly. It's because it's just like so hard to have a print product that people actually think is legit downtown. And Mel is doing that with interview in a really thrilling way. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it does. You're smart to make the link to the Drunken Canucks. There's something similar there about how they did. Mm-hmm. They see some open space and they own it. And when there's such a cacophony of like all this media noise constantly hitting us to stand out, print or otherwise, I think it's incredible. I think what Mel did here and kind of it's a print magazine, but this like hit first digitally and it kind of like owned the space so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like yeah, the kind of thing was a glorious example of that. And I'm, I'm sure there's more to come. Like, uh, it's it's a great, great. I mean, you know, downtown New York is better when Interview Magazine is relevant. Like that's been the case forever. Like like Interview is a great magazine when it's great. And I think that, that it, New York is better for it when it is. Yeah, I'm so stoked for it. I'm absolutely here for it. It makes me happy uh, and mm-hmm. thrilled to be alive. Speaking of Vanity Fair, I noticed this as I was riding on a plane the other day. I rewatched a uh, seminal film, Beetlejuice, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, so 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 important and i noted this amazing line uh where the mom i guess it's uh who's it Catherine o'hara, Catherine o'hara says yeah. to the <laughs> says the daughter about a dinner party she says thing uh, i forget the the name of the character but played by winona Ryder, the daughter you know you're the only person that's going to be here that hasn't been featured in vanity fair <laughs> I thought that was absolutely <laughs> brilliant and it made me Let's think you know, i'm glad it occurred to me right now um, um yeah classic vf reference moment beetlejuice oh, gotta rewatch it so yeah you're totally next your next long flight it's it's been on united recently mm-hmm. um speaking a little bit closer to the actual art world there's been uh a lot oh, of art world Interesting. yeah i get yeah. i mean yeah. we're kind of down we're still on we're still on winter break although it is it's gearing up as of later i this know week. there's there's a, there's more news than i thought there would be this week yeah right. yeah and there's tons of openings like my we'll get into my travel mm-hmm. schedule in a minute because i think we're going to link up in person again fairly soon but yep. uh so there was uh a lot of art world denizens not including me uh received text messages uh, purporting to be from hillary clinton maybe last week uh nancy featuring- pelosi Nancy Pelosi, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, six of one, half dozen the other. Um, <laughs> from from Nancy Pelosi, kind of in the format of these t- these kind of uh, terrible um, fundraising text messages that those of us that are on the wrong list get, urging people to show up to Paul Chan's show at the Green Neftali Gallery uh, that opened on January the 6th, sort of memorializing the... I don't know what you want to call it, uprising, riot <laughs> that happened a year ago. Um, and the show itself, and so it's urging you to come to the show of Paul Chan's drawings that are basically of the events of uh, January 6, 2021. 
um, and noting that there will be a voter registration drive as part of the exhibition. These text messages got an awful lot of blowback from people who thought they were just incredibly an incredibly cheesy way to promo the show, although it is pretty unclear if this was an officially sanctioned uh, invitation from the gallery or the artists or their associates or maybe not. I know a lot of people thought, or Matthew Maloof at one point, took ownership of saying that he sent out these text messages. What do you know about that, Nate? Well, I, I know very little because, um, you know, as I said, not. New York yeah, but right let's now. conjecture. Let's let's do a little conjecture from what I can gather from what I know about Paul and his practice. There is, I think, something more going on here than just the 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 knee jerk, like liberal astonishment at a riot. And, and I know that it's easy to read this on a sort of literal level, like it is a you know show one work of the insurrection. But, you know, thinking about how Paul has sort of, you know, towed the line between like real earnestness and complete anarchy over the years and, you know, through the publications he's made on printing press primarily, uh, you know, and if you look at the interview he did uh, that was published by Dodie Kazanjian and Vogue, it's an interview between him and his 10-year-old daughter. I think that the, the, the tongue is slightly more in cheek than, than the outraged liberal blogosphere has uh, uh, made it out to be. Well, like, I mean, like, to, like, to be to be clear, he's I mean, the 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 real outrage come from the far left, because it seems mm -hmm. like the kind of thing this seems like the kind of thing that kind of a boomer esque liberal person would be right. their take on the politics of it. This this is terrible. I'm making these drawings to support real democracy and we're going to have voter registration. And so the real leftists were like looking at this kind of banal instrumentation of politics in the art sphere with outrage. And I think rightfully so if it wasn't tug in cheek. But if he is so, not. If he is yeah. trolling, it's a real specific troll, I have to say. It's not a troll, though, because it's like something that actually has more nuance than that. And like it's 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 both earnest and like self critiquing in, in a way that that is just, you know, two steps ahead of these kids with keyboards, you know. And so like, like when I read just like these completely, you know, outraged, like I can't believe that Paul Chan is like such a boomer or whatever. It's just like I think he's operating on a level a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not just a voter registration thing. You know, it's not just like a, a you know, a sort of um, documentary know, take. Right. I think that 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 as has been the case for much of his career, there's a, something a little bit more nuanced going on. I don't really know exactly. You know, I, maybe I I'm hope wrong. For, I hope for his sake it is because the the, the base reading, um, and I think you might be right because I do know Paul a little bit and I know some of his intellectual history and he has been a deep thinker in the past, although often hewing towards a very uh, uh, black and white form of politics, much like the black and white drawing. So I hope you're right. Because the 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 original the the initial surface reading this is hyper cringe. I mean the cringiest yeah, I know, of cringe. I know, I know. I'm aware of that. I mean, like there's. there's I don't, like, I don't mean like, to put you in the position of defending him, but you did you did pull me back from the precipice when I was like, oh my god, we got to blow this up. This is so cheese, so cringe. Right. That's obviously the first impression that one has when looking at this. But I think that having you know read some of the interviews that he's done and looked at the sort of you know the quote unquote prank texts that went out, the, we don't know who sent them. But there's a chance that Paul has something to do with them also. Um, there's a chance. I don't know. I don't think it was Matthew Maloof. I think that he is, once again, doing this performative Instagram thing. That, that he, he does his, that thing, you know, 
very thoroughly. I that he often gets into a lot of trouble for. Yes, yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's and you know there there is the reality that he was dropped by Green Tally uh, early in the pandemic. So um, there could be some sort of thing there. I don't want to go into Matthew's shit because I just don't know exactly what his. You know, we're we're in real tenuous ground here. Although I have to say, if it if there was if this isn't as cringe as it seems. I love the fact that Paul was able to get all these keyboard kids, uh, as you phrase them, all up in a tizzy and in a in a in a lather and mm-hmm. making memes about Green Neftali and the show and how cringe it was. The notion that they might have some egg on their face, I will get no small amount of satisfaction from, I have to be clear. Well, I mean that that just just sort of feeds into the whole narrative, right? It's all it's all great. Like I'm enjoying all of this. Like, like I'm not saying that like uh it's it's fun to see all all these sort of reactions to it and clearly it you know for a show with one drawing or whatever like this is all people are talking about so i mean the fact that we're talking about paul chan on this podcast like yeah exactly it wouldn't be happening otherwise i know we should be talking about fucking steaks and martinis yeah yeah i don't know it's it's i mean talk about much like interview like and something that actually maybe because it's such a quiet period really took over though the uh, our particular corner of the cultural sphere mm-hmm. pretty completely for 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 a couple of days um, yeah you know so there's there's some power there i did go and see the show um mm-hmm. you you're the only oh, walter robinson seemed to have seen it also yeah yeah for instagram but that's i it. thought i thought it was really cringe in person as, <laughs> as an artwork i have to say i found it to be uh didactic in the extreme and the only thing worse than political art is highly didactic political art. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I can't w- disagree with you there. So, so if, if, if that's all it is, then then that's all it is. Yeah. Um. All right. We will we will move on from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also blowing up. Uh. Uh. And and briefly, um. Ryder Rips had an interesting take on. Uh. You know, last week we spoke briefly on the. Uh, they're not bathing apes. What do we call these stupid cartoons that people trade as anti- NFTs? God, um, it's the Board Ape Yacht Club. The Board Ape Yacht Club. Christ. So we, we were all said that for the first time. In my life. <laughs> and it's on tape, buddy. Um, <laughs> so uh, we were um, uh, not mocking, uh, but neither were we commiserating with um, Todd Kramer of uh, uh, of a gallery in Chelsea, who I guess is a big player in the space, who got his pocket picked. Uh, via a phishing scam of some of his apes. And uh, on the heels of that, uh, we have Ryder Rips, the uh, graphic designer, for lack of a better term. He, and, he's uh, an artist. You can call him an artist. I mean, I mean you can. I might well. not. Um, <laughs> but uh, talking about the kind of a lot of the racialized imagery that can be found in these board apes. You have basically these cartoons that are somewhat urban in terms of their, so their apes, first of all, are somewhat cartoony in a lot of their accoutrements, uh, excuse me, a lot somewhat urban in their, in their cartoonishness in some of their accoutrements, you know, big heavy chains, the type of clothing they're wearing and such not. But the fact is they're basically uh, bought and sold by a bunch of pale white dudes in their mom's basements. Um, and there's a certain incongruity there. And he goes really deep into some of the real racialized imagery and the history of that dating back even into some Nazi imagery. Um, I think they're terrible for a lot of reasons. I'm not sure if there is one, but it's certainly an interesting take. Of course, as usual, Dean Kissick, uh, your friend and mine, uh, had the best take on Ryder's take in that um, the real crime is that how fucking ugly and cheesy and thin uh, as aesthetic vehicles they are. Um, You heard Mm -hmm. anything else? No, I mean, you know, again, this is sort of out of my wheelhouse. Uh, but, you know, I did read uh, the interview that Ryder Rips gave to the illustrious publication KnowYourMeme.com, 
that that you know it it expresses an argument that I I think anyone would find very compelling. I don't know anything about the board ape yacht club or its culture, so I can't really I can't really talk about it. I know there was there was a big Twitter moment thing, whatever the, the Twitter conversations thing, uh, like last week where people were really um, expressing anger over what they thought were you know caricatures uh, being propagated by the board api club the thing that's, that's interesting and complicated is that no one knows who's made who made these no one knows who, who's the the creator is so no one can be held accountable really except for i guess the collectors um and the collectors can kind of you know sort of justify their own collecting in various ways they can say it's an investment or whatnot i i don't really know uh you know uh, if they need to defend themselves or whatever you know i mean I think that the writer's uh, interview makes very clear, uh, you know, why people are angry, though. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I have nothing to say. I, I want to be clear. This is not my beat either. <laughs> it just feels yeah. as though it's something important to comment on. Um, did we have anything else? I do want to save a bunch of time. We're really uh, I'm really thrilled to have a great interview coming up with Adam Abdallah, who uh, mm -hmm. started yeah. Cultural Council, one Close of our favorite friend Adam Abdallah. great friend and uh, and really talking about his his awesome magazine, Orange Crush. Uh, so so Adam's like a big PR guy, has a great firm, Cultural Council, uh, mm -hmm. very active in the art and hospitality sectors. His other big uh, passion is professional wrestling. Uh, he's even, mm -hmm. I believe, the owner of Professional Wrestling League of some sort. But he has this really cool magazine called Orange Crush. It's a confluence of art and wrestling and where they intersect. And he's got a new issue out. We're going to talk all about it. It's like an interview with Matthew Barney in there that's pretty incredible about aesthetics yeah, and, really awesome and the human body. And so stay tuned. I got a nice sit down with him coming up right after this. I'll talk to you later, Nate. Talk to you later, bud. Welcome back to Nota Bene. I am joined by my good friend, Adam Abdallah, the founder and uh, chief whatever at Cultural Council. What's your job title? Just the big shit? President. El Presidente, Adam Abdallah. Uh, good friend of mine, good friend of the art world and the cultural sphere. And uh, important to this particular conversation, the founder of the magazine Orange Crush, founder and publisher. Is that right? Correct. I'm the editor in chief and publisher. You're in charge of everything, everywhere. Um, I want to get into Orange Crush in a bit because I was actually digging into it today and really digging it. But I want to get uh, first a bit into you. How do you? What is your background that finds you that you end up fucking having a magazine that's about the intersection of art and wrestling? Well, um, I guess there's two paths that have converged, I would say. You know, I've been involved in the contemporary art world probably for the last 18 years, but I've been a devout fan of professional wrestling for 35. So, um, you know, ever since I was probably about five years old, you know, like a lot of kids in my generation, I was raised by TV. Um, and for me, what I was kind of immediately attracted to was professional wrestling. Um, in my professional career as a publicist, I've often, you know, had the opportunity to travel the world um, and experience a lot of different cultures. As a result, I've also been able to, you know, do that in parallel in terms of following like professional wrestling around the world. I've traveled to Mexico, Japan most of the continental United States and really gotten a sense of different scenes. So when I originally conceived this publication, it was kind of like, you know, aligning with like the wanderlust uh, 
aspect of professional wrestling and being a super fan um, while combining that with my, you know, obvious expertise and interest in the contemporary art world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and both show plus like, it's like a beautifully designed book. I mean, like super gorgeous. Um, it's an annual, right? It's like a magazine in a magazine format, but an annual magazine. It's an annual journal. Um, I collaborate with my wife, Susan, who's a graphic designer. She does all the layouts. I work and kind of conceive the story ideas. And then I sign it out to various folks in the world of wrestling, um, literature and contemporary art. I mean, it's a, it's a hot looking thing. And I have to be honest. So like wrestling is like, obviously like as I'm the same generation of you, like I watched it as I was a kid, friends of mine were more into it. Like their parents would get the, the pay-per-view and like, we'd go over there and beat the shit out of each other. Like while it was going on on the TV, like in basement rec rooms. Um, but like, it hasn't been something I've followed terribly closely, i.e. at all. I've never been to professional wrestling in the States. I have been in Mexico City. I believe that's the only live wrestling experience I ever have. So I wanted to book you and then I wanted to, you know, you sent me the PDFs. I've seen a print version of the magazine. I don't own it, but you sent me the PDFs and like, this thing is dope, man. I'm like, I'm like all about it. I went down like multiple Google, like deep dives based upon my reading through this. Um, so this issue, which is due to drop at the end of this month. Month. Um, you have three unique covers, right? In limited editions each. Um, shot by three, like, really pretty high end photographers uh, Zia Hilti, Ryan Loco, and Michael Watson. Um, and who are the three cover subjects? So, the three cover subjects are one is Eddie Kingston, who is a journeyman professional wrestler from Yonkers that I've followed for probably the last 20 years who finally kind of got his big break uh, very recently when he got signed to All Elite Wrestling, um, which is Tony Khan's promotion that is on Turner Broadcast. He's the same kid who owns the Jacksonville Jaguar with his dad. Um, and, you know, Self, I, self-made I kid? Him. Yeah, right. Uh, well, at least the wrestlers are. Um, so Eddie, yeah, so Eddie is, you know, somebody that I've always been really fascinated and he's probably one of the best talkers in professional wrestling. He's real, real, really emotive. Um, and, he, I mean, and he looks like he's from Yonkers. He does. He was a bouncer up there, too. I, I, I was recently told by a, a mutual friend. He used to see him at the clubs. Um, beyond that, we also have Orange Cassidy, who is kind of a very unique uh, character in professional wrestling. Um, he has this kind of vibe similar to the characters in like Wet Hot American Summer. He's like he's, super laconic and just like everything is an effort even to show up and like throw a punch or do a move kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's kind of like a commentary on Gen Z to a certain extent. <laughs> I think as, as Dan DeRay, <laughs> excuse me, as Dan DeRay uh, 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 calls it, um, you know, or describes it, you know, he kind of shows up in like Canadian tuxedo like super chill aviators always on like and this dude doesn't break character basically he, he didn't break he doesn't break character he wouldn't let us publish his real name in the magazine either um he's kind of old school in terms of kayfabe uh which is a term that you know kind of wrestling people use for like uh it's a carny term essentially for like keeping the lie up more or less kayfabe kayfabe yeah. I like that. I'm stealing it. Um, which I think means fake and, in, in, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's it called when you, when you put the pig Latin? 
Yeah, pig, right? oh, oh, really? Pig Latin? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it, it basically means you don't break the fourth wall ever. Yeah, And the fourth exactly. wall, like, moves with you almost like a, a constant performance. And he's and he's somebody who's been very controversial and who people kind of, you know, were doubting that he might succeed because of the way that he wrestles. Because he almost makes a joke out of it, like, even in the context of wrestling, which is, you know, predetermined and in some aspects fake. Like, he makes it look fake as if he's, like, not really trying and that upsets a certain sector of wrestling fan who thinks that their, you know, predetermined wrestling should like take itself very seriously. Um, but he wound up being wildly popular and one of the top merchandise sellers for the promotion that he wrestles in, and a TV ratings draw, and actually the favorite wrestler of the executives at TNT. So he's he's our sec- second cover, and our third is a wrestler named Thunder Rosa, who is an amazing female wrestler out of San Antonio, Texas. Um, also works for a number of national promotions, but also runs a school and wrestling uh, promotion out of San Antonio called Mission Pro Wrestling, which is an all women's wrestling promotion where we did this incredible spread looking at her interacting with her students and just kind of like the expanse of her career. So those are the three uh, covers. We always go with wrestlers for the covers because I would say probably 80, 85% of our audience are wrestling fans and we're you know, educating them about the art world aspect of things. Um, but you know, all three photographers who I've worked with are folks who have been like in the scene for a long, long time, taking really incredible pictures, creating their own zines. And, you know, I'm excited to get these out there. They've been very popular already. Yeah, I didn't realize. So it's, it's if you feel like it's mostly like 80% or so, you said wrestling fans that are buying this and not art fans. I would just say so. Like, you know, what's interesting is finding out who in the art world actually likes wrestling along the way when I get my you know, receipts in from Spotify or Shopify, that is. Um, I've seen, you know, I've had some interesting people pop up on my customer list. Interesting names. I want to go into all three of your cover subjects a little bit more, but first I do, for since this is mostly an art pod, uh, podcast and I I booked you kind of through the lens of that as being an art guy. And the thing that, the thing that really drew me about this particular issue was that it features one of my favorite working contemporary artists um, and a really long form interview with Matthew Barney. That's like absolutely incredible that Charlie Fox did for you guys. Um, And like just incredible interview with Matthew about masculinity, about the body, about his, you know, background as a high school wrestler and, and an athlete. And it gets really in depth, um, into matthew's practice but also like his knowledge of wrestling which you know for him almost stands in in a way a contemporary form of opera he says uh, i'm paraphrasing um which many people have seen his his oeuvre as operatic in its both its approach to themes and its scale obviously how'd you guys book matthew barney for a fucking wrestling magazine well charlie fox who is one of my favorite writers out of the uk had approached me about Orange Crush more generally because he's a lifelong wrestling fan. He'd actually originally uh, pitched me on doing a critical essay of the Hell in the Cell match between The Undertaker and Mankind at the 1998 King of the Ring show. And I was like, that's a little granular for us. You know, if I'm, I'm using somebody from the art world with access, I'd love to do more become a feature interview. And then I was, he's like, well, what about Matthew Barney? And I said, yeah, I would fucking love to have Matthew Barney my wrestling and art magazine, obviously, you know, I'm, I mean, I was aware of the parallels, you know, Matthew himself was an amateur wrestler. Um, you know, the mature, the majority of things that we feature kind of the magazine are loosely tied or directly tied to professional wrestling. But I think given the kind of 
the nature of his practice, the fact that he's actually incorporated um, elements of wrestling into you know sculptural works and photography, uh, very famously like the wrestling mats um, that you see, you've seen in his work, um, it was a really good fit. And also, you know, I, I try not to be too prescriptive as well. I mean, we have a few different um, artists who have a relationship to professional wrestling in this issue, um, like Mark Yang, who shows at Half Gallery, also has his own history as an amateur wrestler, has informed his work. Um, you know, Jeremy oh, Deller. Uh, I don't know. Sorry, I don't if I'm getting too far ahead of things. No, 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 no. It's all good. It's all good. I didn't. I mean, we so we can certainly move on. I just uh, this this Barney interview is maybe one of the most accessible and interesting interviews with Matthew I've ever read. And it really is about the work and you get a lot out of it. But like he's I wouldn't say he's fully down to clown, as we say, but like he's down to engage. And the fact that he was willing to be like in a magazine about mostly about professional wrestling, performative wrestling, as he says, you know, this is something in the 90s. He definitely would have declined. Um, but I thought it was, yeah, it was it's, a good get. It's funny. I think with like major artists who have like a tangential relationship to wrestling, the reaction is generally like, really? Well, okay. You know, um, I think the presentation of the magazine gives the work itself and the images a lot of room to breathe. Um, typically they're in, they're in good company, you know, um, in the last issue I did, a, uh, an interview, I did it myself actually with Raymond Pettibon, who is also just, you know, a massive professional wrestling fan um, going back to the 1970s and the Olympic auditorium in LA. Yeah. I guess um, he really likes fake things these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know, but I wondered, I was just thinking, I wonder if one of the reasons, I mean, speaking not of fakes, I mean, professional wrestling is something that is, I think we could say choreographed, like the, the, the outcome is done and there's a certain grace to it because it is in, in some ways kind of a form of dance and that it's two athletes working together, two performers, athletes. I'm not even sure what the, what the right language is, but as we live in an age where like artifice seems to have taken over more than at any point in, in human history, at least contemporary human history, I wonder if it makes more sense to somebody like Matthew Barn. It doesn't feel so far from like high culture. There's been a collapse where something like wrestling feels like part and parcel with other sorts of culture that are happening. Yeah. I mean, even in my own practice as a, you know, kind of publicist connector, I, I'm always interested in this crossover between things that are very accessible um, and that are like kind of aesthetically uh, advanced. It's like, you know, like in New York magazine, they have the, the approval matrix. It's like lowbrow brilliant. Right. That's, that's kind of, what I feel like I enjoy personally, you know, a lot of the time in terms of things that uh, you kind of want to be on the extremes. You just never want to be in the middle. You never want to be like, right. Exactly. Text, right. Yeah. And people, I think people have responded to that. So, well, it's kind of titillating to, you know, have see contemporary art in context with something that they find to be, you know, lowbrow or offensive or abhorrent, depending on who the person is. Um, and for me, like that, that's what makes it a little bit more fun. Um, and then I want to go backwards um, <clears throat> in terms of stuff that you featured on the cover this go around on the three covers. This Thunder Rosa, uh, I read it mostly as a photo essay. I, I, I didn't fully finish the text, but this incredible story about a female focused uh, wrestling league, kind of one step up from backyard wrestling, it seems like, in terms of its uh, production values. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's independent wrestling, you know? So, so what, is that, what does that mean? So there's, there's different experiences you can have going to professional wrestling in the world. There's going to WWE or All Elite Wrestling, which is like going to a concert. There's pyrotechnics. It's like flashing lights. If you watch it on TV, there's just incessant like camera cuts 
you know, it's like overproduced. And, you know, it's the same as going to like an arena rock show. You're removed. Uh-huh. Independent wrestling is a much more highly personalized experience. Um, it's really geared towards a live event experience. It's geared towards individual individual interactions between the performers and the audience, both, you know, during the course of the presentation, like there's a lot of like crowd interplay, for example, and also, you know, outside of the course of the ring, like you can actually meet and talk to these people and form relationships and, build communities and Rosa while she is a national star you know has really built kind of like almost like a little farm system uh, of an independent uh, wrestling league in San Antonio where she's helping train um, a lot of the best young independent um, women wrestlers uh, getting them ready for an opportunity to kind of get into the big leagues so I mean the photographs are fantastic. What's the background of this photographer, Michael Watson? I don't I don't know the work previously. Michael Watson is a music and wrestling photographer based out of Iowa. Um, he he's been he's been shooting um, in the wrestling world for a long time, and his remit has really been kind of like the Midwest, so like Chicago, Iowa, Ohio. Um, and I've always been familiar with his work. We actually profiled him um in the last orange crush he has two books that he made called the wrestlers which are uh basically where he's taken like a polaroid photograph of like almost like every wrestler that he's come across in the last decade and as a wrestling fan you know and a business that moves pretty quickly in terms of people going from the independents to the pros there's just like countless like you know kind of household names incorporated into those books and they're just really cool items yeah you know? no, they're, they're really beautiful photographs and i love this notion of these of this ind- these independent wrestling leagues i mean the way you the way you um line it up in, in you know in its diametrical opposition or it's not diametrical but it's opposition to kind of more overly produced stuff are there any leagues like that around new york like can i go see something like this not necessarily a, a female focused one but just well, in general i don't know if you know this but i own a professional wrestling company what jersey championship wrestler amazing is- tell me about this so- quick detour so I basically, so I, I am the co-owner of a company called Jersey Championship Wrestling. It is the sister promotion of Game Changer Wrestling, which is the probably like the most popular, fastest rising independent wrestling promotion in the United States. Um, Game Changer Wrestling is running the Hammerstein Ballroom on January 23rd. They And they've sold more tickets to a wrestling show than any other league in history. It's like 2005 people are going to the show. My company is the sister promotion. So wrestlers who are kind of at the bottom of the card in GCW or, you know, not quite there yet, but will be soon. They wrestle for us. We do shows in Ridgefield Park, New Jersey at the Knights of Columbus, like once every two months. We also do shows. We do the matinee in uh, Atlantic City at the show, but whenever GCW has a big show. I mean, this sounds fun. We got to go. How I want an invitation. I want to come to this. Yeah. Our next show will be, uh, let's see. It's looking like February 19th at the showboat in Atlantic City at 2 p.m. So how does that work? The wrestlers work for you or independent contractors of you and, and you kind of uh, arrange the matches and that? Like what, yeah, how, what's the economic exactly, system look like? Yeah, they're all independent contractors. I mean, if you call it that, there's no contracts. They, you know, they get paid for the gig and they show up. Um, we, we write the shows. We, you know, put together the matchups. We consult with them on how the performances will kind of play out on the finishes and long-term story storylines that we concoct essentially from show to show. Um, 
in some instances, those storylines cross over to the other, the larger promotion. Some of them are in a vacuum, but you know, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a creative endeavor. It's a, it's a- yeah, for sure. And unlike your day job, like you can actually write these storylines and they get played out exactly as you want them to, not Maybe. just, uh, <laughs> that's, that's very true. You have total control of the coverage, so to speak um that's very cool we're gonna have to come out and do a little note bene live or not live but note bene trip uh trip to the wrestling um speaking of really good photography the towards the back of the book you have a really great feature on a wrestling photographer um george neapolitano is that his name george napolitano yeah george napolitano i mean this is like i mean the 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 cover image to the story is a photo of debbie harry and andre the giant um which i kind of want to print out and put on my wall it's so epic um, but it seems like he was there for everyone in what I think of as what was my personal heyday of wrestling, meaning when I paid attention in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, so George Napolitano is probably the most prominent professional wrestling photographer of all time, but his heyday was really um, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and in that time, there were a lot more kind of independently owned wrestling publications. There was a guy named Bill Apter. I've actually been introduced to him lately, um, who, you know, kind of commissioned things called that were colloquially called after mags, but things like pro wrestling illustrated the wrestler. And they would always have these amazing, like bloody photos on the cover of like major wrestlers, like in the midst of the match, George Napolitano probably took the most famous of those photos. Um, and it's all, it was indicative of kind of like the differences between the time then and now, you know, major league big time pro wrestling right now is very corporate. Back then, photographers like George would get unmitigated access to people like Andre the Giant, Bruno San Martino, Freddie Blassie, Hulk Hogan. You know, he was backstage getting them in really interesting moments. Um, you know, there's a there's a photo of Freddie Blassie in the hospital wearing like eye patches on both eyes that we published in this magazine. Um, you know, like really kind of cool, intimate stuff. And um, you know, I thought, what better way to kind of honor this guy? He still he still. Uh, is a working photographer. He's actually the official photographer for the Brooklyn Cyclones. He lives in Diker Heights. Very cool. Um, super cool. And then you mentioned, you know, kind of bringing it back to the art, you have a great feature of paintings uh, by Mark Yang, who, as you noted, is a painter that shows with Half Gallery here in New York. Uh, I even have one in my collection. Um, and a really cool stuff. And I, I, you know, there's always been an athleticism to these to these pictures. I didn't realize that he himself was a former kind of Greco-Roman style wrestler. He was, yeah. I actually met Mark at the Dallas Art Fair this past uh, November, and you know, became more. I've, I'd been familiar with the work, but I've become more familiar with them, like seeing him in the booth, you know. And then I quickly found out that he's had he has a lot of heat as an artist. Um, but I was excited to inc- incorporate his works. You know, we we have a history, you know, kind of sh- showing similar work like that in the magazine. In the first issue, we did a big spread on um, on Carol Dunham's wrestling paintings, obviously, which may be the most, like, famous wrestling paintings, I mm-hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I-, I was really excited to be able to kind of show a different side. Um, very, very cool. And then just, I want to circle back to, we uh, actually, no, what, what, there's one more article real quick that I also really liked is um, this guy, Para, who's this big, huge, hulking, 6'4", 300-pound uh, wrestler, who, I mean, really looks like what you think of as, like, an Eastern European wrestler. It's just this big, burly bear of a man. But I guess he's a queer guy, and that's become part of his wrestling identity. Yeah, beer, bear is probably the right term. Um, 
Yeah, Paro is a wrestler from Florida who has traveled the world, United States and Japan, um, kind of as a as a fierce like I don't know if you remember the Road Warriors or the Legion of Doom when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, type wrestler, like really kind of like a a monster. Um, but he's you know openly gay. Um, he participates in many LGBTQ. Um, themed wrestling events which are a growing kind of uh it's a growing sector of the business which i think is is great and important um and something that we've kind of chronicled in each issue of this magazine so far in different ways we did a kind of an overarching article about lgbtq wrestlers in the first issue we um profiled an artist named uh, still life with apricots and pears in the second issue who was a wrestler who's well, actually, there's a contemporary art-themed gimmick, um, but is also trans, um, and we did a really nice profile. And all three were written by this um, artist and DJ named Eric Shorey, who does like really analytical pieces about um, kind of the queer space in professional wrestling. Um, and those are accompanied by some really crazy, wild photos as well. Um, yeah, I mean, speaking of speaking of Eric's writing, which is you know it, he's from at least from what I've read. He's really looking at wrestling the way an art critic would write about an artwork uh, or an artistic practice. And in a, in a, while it's not dripping with theory, it's a real close textual reading, we would say. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, like, kind of the more wrestling centric fans who pick up your magazine, like, do you think they engage with that? What kind of feedback have you gotten, if any? I mean, I think people buy the publications for the pictures and for the, for the covers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've got an incredible amount of feedback from folks on the articles that we've we published in terms of just you know really educating them about you know the scene in general i mean an article like that like paro that's actually probably more of an education for a non-wrestling fan than a wrestling fan mm-hmm. like okay. wrestling fans who are in the scene like you know especially in the independent scene i mean they're aware of the fact that there are kind of like all these subcultural shows going on shows that focus on lgbtq wrestlers shows that focus on african-american wrestlers you know like there's a real kind of uh, call for representation, I think, in every subculture when it comes to like popular culture and popular consumption of it these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it may be more enlightening to, I think, folks like from the art world, you know, who just aren't aware of like. Who presume anything that isn't high art is kind of, you know, uh, is reductive uh, or, or we're kind of reductive in that way. That exactly. makes sense. Um I mean, I just, I love the look of the book. It's like so well, it's so well made and so beautifully laid out. I mean, it's like a, a very cool document. I just went back and bought a bunch of the, the back issues that are still available. I know one of them is sold out at least. We uh, sold out number two, yeah. um, coinciding with the pre-sale of this new one, but the first one is still available. Yeah, um, I, bought, the, I bought, do... bought that one. Um, it's, I mean, it's a super cool thing. I love that it's limited. I love that it's an annual. I mean, I just think it's uh, it's beyond chic and super weird. And I love weirdness and the world needs more weirdness. And I love that it's like such a passion of yours because you have an interesting story, not just being a wrestling nut, but like, as I recall, your background, uh, although you're not from there, like kind of starts in New Orleans in the post-Katrina age. That's kind of how you got into PR and art. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. So when I was about 20 years old, I moved to New Orleans to do um, hurricane relief post Katrina, like right afterwards, like late 2015. Um, 
I was tearing down, you know, houses that were destroyed by the hurricane, salvaging precious materials like Cypress, and then bringing and working with a nonprofit that sold them back to the community for like pennies on the dollar so they could rebuild. While I was there, there was a um, nonprofit called the Green Project, which was essentially like kind of a mashup of like Home Depot and the Salvation Army, um, who had their storage facility destroyed during the hurricane. And all my friends were artists. That's how I got into the art world. I went to SUNY Purchase. Um, I was a liberal arts student, but all my friends were in the visual arts program there. And I was like, so I wrote a proposal to the board of directors of this nonprofit. And I said, well, what if we turn this facility that's out of use into like a a gallery space and a a space for community programming? Um, And since I'm not an artist, I, I wrote basically all the press releases. I raised funds for it. I organized the project. And I was able to get national attention for it and taught myself how to do promotion and publicity. Um, I was tw- by the time I was done, I was about 21. So I came back to New York and I'm like, is that a job? Can you do like publicity for art? This was like 2006, you know? Um, so it existed, but it wasn't super popular. I went up getting a front desk job at a, at a small agency called Susan Grant Lewin Associates, where I was hired as the receptionist. Um, they took a chance on me, and I basically listened to all the meetings that went on in the boardroom behind me every day. Um, and that's how I learned about a lot of the nuances of the art world, nuances of the design world. And probably in about six months, I got promoted from you know, an assistant to an executive based on the fact that I was already placing stories. So I spent two years there, and then I was poached by my former employer, Nadine Johnson, um, where I became senior vice president over time. And I built a, when I started, I had one client, um, Dasha Zukova, who I still work with today. And uh, by the time I left, I had about 35, but I didn't have equity in the company or anything like that. And I also had more of an interest in working more directly with artists, with curatorial organizations, with universities. You know, my former job was maybe a little bit more socially inclined um, than my personal interests. So uh, I found a cultural council in 2015. Myself and one employee, Marce- Marcella Zimmerman, who's my, my senior vice president. And now six and a half years later, we have 25 employees and you know clients all over the world. And you're, look- and you're looking for more. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're hiring. S- send a resume in. If, hiring like five, six people right now. If, if you started mm-hmm. a non, if you started a nonprofit gallery in New Orleans, give Adam a call. Um, <laughs> and you you have like a shit ton of clients, man. I was going through your list. I couldn't. Is this like active clients or is anyone you've ever worked with like tangentially? What list are you looking at? Um, uh, the one you publish on your website, Poppy. Yeah, the website is a mix of um, current clients as well as project based clients based clients who probably aren't necessarily current but you know we probably have around 60 to 70 clients i mean uh, and you work with like real galleries real artists some fantastic museums i mean major museums um which i think is really cool and you know i make fun of pr people all the time but i have to say you do it mostly right you know mostly um yeah i mean i think we have a few areas of expertise i mean one of the things that um we've kind of become well known for in the last couple of years is helping foundations launch um, grant programs and other philanthropic endeavors to support artists. Well, that came out of a big project you did with Artadia kind of in the beginning months or beginning in the beginning months of the pandemic, right? Yeah. So we were uh, technically, we were the co-founders of Artist Relief. Uh, we worked very closely with seven mid-sized nonprofits, uh, including Artadia, United States Artists, Creative Capital, Foundation for Contemporary Art, among others. Um, to create the 
PR and marketing strategy for then a theoretical um, COVID-19 relief grant program. Um, I actually called my friend Dina Hagag, who now works at the Mellon Foundation. I was like, hey, you know, you know, it seems like there's not going to be any events for a while. This was like the first week of March of 2020. You know, do we have any extra budget from, you know, some of our marketing plan that we can throw towards artists for relief? And she was like, well, I have a much bigger idea. Um, and with that, I kind of helped her and Carolyn and the team build a strategy where we can go to foundations like Mellon and Ford and Knight and get them to buy in and be super ready to like redistribute funds. So we were able to raise about $10 million over the course of the first three weeks and then 25 in total over six months. So we were able to regrant about $5,000, $5,000 grants. That's um, incredible. It was uh, definitely the most satisfying uh, project of my professional career. And we're super proud that we were a part of it. We were all hurting at that time too. Like I lost half my business that same week, you know? Um, but by focusing, I think, on positive change and on relief projects rather than um, damage control and crisis, which a lot of other people in my industry kind of pivoted towards during the pandemic, we were able to open a lot of doors that allowed us to grow significantly. And is business back up? Like your core, like your, your old school core business, like events are back, it seems like, for the most part? Events are back. You know, like events aren't like, you know, I would say our, our top vertical of, of, of business. And a lot of like people in the in the nonprofit space are still doing virtual. Um, obviously. Like, yeah, I know, right? But only thing um, worse than going to a benefit is going to a fucking Zoom benefit. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it, it, I think it depends on. on Just, I'll, I'll write the check. Just let me write the check and not attend, please. I think most people are fine with that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think I think more generally, you know, we've seen a lot of kind of engagement and a lot of other things besides events, like more uh, work regarding, you know, things like social media, paid media, you know, audience development, people putting the work in to really build, um, I, I think, build engagement with anticipation of things coming back to normal. And also just to keep them engaged online along the way. Yeah, no, no, of course. And keep people, I mean, you know, even if you're the, if you're the client, just like keep yourself from getting bored, keep your, keep yourself active and keep the story growing as opposed to just kind of clamming up. Um, anyway, I'm back to normal business is back. COVID's over. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> Heard it here first. All right, Adam. So from, from the high, from like raising and giving grants to a fucking wrestling league, which I didn't know about to this awesome magazine. I'm really glad you could make the time and swing on by. And I want to come to like your next event when I'm in town. Like if it's in New Jersey, Atlantic City, I don't care. Fire up the chopper. We're there. I will. Uh, I'll make it happen. Man. All right, dude. Thanks so much. That's it from us. Nota bene. Out.